So Jesus commands us to love our neighbors, but in Luke 10, a man asks, who is our neighbor? Jesus responds by telling a parable about a man who is robbed and beaten, and even though that a priest and a Levite pass by, the one who helps is actually a Samaritan. Now this would have been a really big deal to Jewish listeners because, see, Samaritans and Jews didn't really get along. To understand this tension, let's have a little bit of Old Testament history. Here we go. So the holy nation of Israel was once one unified nation. Think of King David and King Solomon who reigned in their glory. But then after Solomon, the nation split into two. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom, which had Jerusalem, was called Judah. Now Judah had some good kings and, well, also a bunch of bad kings, but the northern Israel had only bad kings and their capital was Samaria. They worshiped foreign idols instead of the true living God, and so after several generations, God actually punishes them by sending in the Assyrians in the year 722 BC. They took them into captivity, and those who remained intermarried with the Assyrians, so the religion kind of became a mixture of Judaism and paganism. So now the only remaining kingdom is the southern kingdom, Judah. The Jews looked at their northern brothers and saw how God punishes unfaithfulness. Now, you would think that they would have learned, but actually they too rejected God. And so in the year 586 BC, God exiles them to Babylon. The difference is that they were allowed to return to Babylon after 70 years. They came back with this puritanical belief to have nothing to do with the people around them and to obey God fully especially stay away from the Samaritans. So ever since then, there was this separation between the Jews and the Samaritans. So whenever Jesus makes the hero of the story a Samaritan, it must have been pretty shocking to a Jew. So there you go. A little bit about Samaritans, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Yeah, we thank you again for a beautiful week here in Phoenix. We thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to come and dig into your word tonight and to to just uh, to praise you for who you are and what you are to us. We, we pray that you send out your Holy Spirit and power tonight as we go through this word, that, that you would apply it to our lives anew, that you would give us comfort and hope and, and encourage, Lord, to, to face out our deals, and also that we'd remind, be reminded continually that we are loved and forgiven by an amazing God. And so that's our prayer tonight, Lord. Hear us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so we're going to start in, let's see, <laughs> we're going to start in chapter 10, verse 25 tonight, and we're going to start with the parable of the Good Samaritan, the one that Mike was just talking about. Now, just to kind of set this up, there's a lawyer that's going to be asking a question in a second. In this lawyer, you just get the sense that he's listened to all that Jesus has been talking about, right? That the only one that knows the Father is the Son and to whom and to those that he gives them to him, right? The one that he shares them with. He talks about being the Messiah. He talks about being the only way. He talks about the kingdom of God being near and those that cling to him find that kingdom of God for all of eternity. So that the lawyer's listening to all this. That's the sense that you get. And he asks this question because he's a little confused because remember, the Jews, they, they, they thought a lot of the law, right? And, and they believed in every respect that you kind of worked your way to heaven in a lot of ways. They knew they weren't perfect, which is why they clamored when, when John the Baptist came and preached a forgiveness of sins. They, they knew they weren't perfect, and yet they thought that through that obedience, through their love for God, that God would see that and, and count them righteous and enough to be in, in heaven for eternity. Okay, so the, the lawyer's listening to all this, and he asked this question. It's actually a brilliant question. It's actually one of the big questions of all time, the lawyer stood up and to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
Now, the wisdom of that question is huge because he was hearing everything that was going on. He asked the right on question. He asked the absolute question that was on everybody's minds. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as you listen to that question, and it's inherent, there's a flaw in it, right? It's not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done. And yet he's listening to all this, hearing Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, and he says, if this is all true, what must I do? And he's putting Jesus to a test, assuming that he's going to say something dumb and he'll be able to pounce on him and share with him the truth of the law and all sorts of different things. And Jesus responds to him in a brilliant way. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he asked him a question right back, and this is a question that he should know as a lawyer. And so he almost would be embarrassed not to answer the question. So he answers the question. He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, with, and love your neighbor as yourself. In this answer, and it's part of the great Shema, right? Love God, love your neighbor. He shows a great amount of wisdom as to what the law entails. This isn't just your typical lawyer that says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and, and I'm going to keep you accountable. He's one that understood that the whole purpose that God had for the law was for us to love. First him, and then everybody else. He shows a wisdom, he shows a spiritual maturity in the question that he asks. But he's still curious. Jesus answered, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And in saying that, Jesus actually just says a couple of things. If you could do it perfectly, do you get to go to heaven? Actually, yes. If you could do the law perfectly, you get to go to heaven because you don't need forgiveness. So there's two ways to heaven. You can be perfect or you can be forgiven. Show of hands. How many of you guys are perfect? Yeah, not too many, right? We all fall short of the glory of God. That's what Paul says. But technically, you could do one or the other. So he's sharing with them two things. Number one, absolutely go do that and you will live. Or go do that and you'll realize that you need the forgiveness that I've been talking about. But the lawyer desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? You see, the way the the Jews, especially the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, looked at things is they kind of defined righteousness within certain parameters. If I do these things, then I'm righteous. Even if my heart's far from it, even if I don't do everything over here, if I do these things that we've identified in, you know, the the 700 laws around the Ten Commandments, then then people will look at us as righteous. And when you go into Jewish... uh, uh, the theology and also the teachings that were going on at this time, they define neighbors almost always, and there are several definitions of this, almost always within the context of the people of Israel. So believers. So when he started talking about loving your neighbor, it was exclusively meant for the people that go to this church, right? Or for the, for the Christians in this nation. But it didn't have to include everybody else. And if you define it strictly in terms of other Jews and only had to love them, there was a way perhaps that you could find the compassion that you would need to love them and be perfect under the law. So Jesus goes and he wants to expand a little bit on what a neighbor is, and so he's going to answer this question. Now before we go, I'm going to give you a, a, a couple of illustrations that happened this last week to show you the challenge of loving even those that we would call members of the Christian church in America. I was sitting at um, pickup for my youngest daughter, Gracie, 
And we were sitting in line and was half asleep, you know, just trying to, to get, get the last piece done for the day before I had to run him to swim. And, and a guy came up to me at the window and he says, man, I just ran out of gas. Can you give me a ride to the gas station? You know, after you pick up your kid. And I said, sure. <laughs> I mean, partly because of his boldness and partly because, man, my heart went out to him. I'd want somebody to give me a ride to the gas station if I ran out of gas. As I was thinking through this stuff, I'm thinking, man, I got to get Gracie home. I got to pick up Emmy and her, and they got to take them to swim. I got all this stuff going on. I can't do this. I can't do this. But out of my mouth came, sure, I'd love to do that. And as we went through this, guy kept saying, I, I can't believe you're doing this. We're so appreciative. We're so appreciative. My wife's so mad at me. <laughs> We're just going through the whole thing. Get him to the gas station, get back, and get home. And everything was fine. But I started thinking, I, I said, you know what? That's the last thing I wanted to do today. But I love that God gave me a heart of compassion and just said, if I were him, I'd want somebody to do the same thing, right? Now, another example happened today at the 930 service. There was a gentleman that came in and a first-time visitor, um, dressed modestly, you know, in different ways. And, and he came in and, and he sat right over there in church. He hadn't really gotten to greet anybody. It was the time of greeting, right? And so everybody, that's, he got so excited. The people behind him were telling me the story. So excited, he jumped up to greet the people. The people in front of him turned around, took one look at him, and turned their backs on him. He was so horrified, he got up and he left church. If we can't even love the people that come to our church, we're missing this, aren't we? We get in our way so often when it comes to simply caring and loving the people around us. You wonder why we took it away for a while? That's why. <laughs> because otherwise, at least he's listening to the message, right? Maybe he's greeting some people on the way out, but he doesn't bolt before the service because somebody showed him a lack of love. It's hard to get out of our own way, our own biases, our own issues, our own thoughts of who should be here and who shouldn't. It's hard for us to get out of our own way and actually care and love somebody else. But you get the sense that this lawyer did. He understood that the whole purpose of the law was to love other people, to get out of his own way and care for people. He understood that. He just was a little murky on who his neighbor was. My prayer is that because of Jesus, you would have a compassion that wells up within you to recognize that the guy's the first timer, to recognize that somehow God touched his heart to get him to worship here, to hear a message about Jesus, about his love, about his forgiveness, and that you are called to show them Jesus. It's a hard thing. And in that we see our frailty, in that we see our sin, in that we see our need for Jesus. This lawyer is a good guy, okay? Cares about people, probably goes out of his way to care for people, right? Amazing man. So Jesus goes on to define this neighbor thing. Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17-mile hike. It goes down precipitously from Jerusalem to Jer Jericho. This was a place that there wasn't a lot of people living. It was a place where bandits existed. There's lots of caves, lots of hideouts, lots of twists and turns along the way. It was notorious for people getting robbed and beaten and killed. It was just a dangerous stretch. So this guy is going from, and they assume he's a Jew, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, which was not surprising. I mean, he must have resisted at some point, or they were just extra mean, I don't know, but they stripped him, and they beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. So they went all the way to make sure this guy had a bad day. 
Now by chance a priest was going down that road. Priest was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, probably had just served his time at the tabernacle, right? At the temple. It was his duty once a month or one month out of the year to go up and do service at the, te- at the, at the temple. Just coming back from serving his Lord, right? Just coming back from spending a month, which would have been a high for a priest, serving at the temple, going to the show, you know, go, go to the big house, right? And, and, and being there and ministering to the people in mass. It was an extraordinary spiritual adventure for this guy. He's coming home off that high. He sees this guy in the road. And what does it say? He's going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I don't know. Some people make the, the case that he was worried about his spiritual cleanliness, right? If he went over and touched the guy, if he was dead, he would be spiritually unclean. Maybe. But if he didn't touch him and he just looked and maybe asked to see how you were doing or something, he would have been fine. So you get the sense that the priest just didn't want to be involved. There was a chance the robbers could have still been around and if he wouldn't help too much, maybe they'd come after him. Maybe he just was just tired. I just want to get home. Maybe he had stuff that he had to do. I, I don't know what the deal was with this guy. But he saw a person in need. He saw a person that was dying on the side of the road and he passed by. I'd love to think that we're different than that. If we saw somebody dying on the side of the road, that we at least pull over to see how they're doing. And how many of us just don't want to be involved? How many of us just drive by? How many of you have seen an accident? Eyewitness to an accident. But you got places to go, people to see. And you don't stop to help. You just drive on by. So likewise, a Levite gone to the temple to worship. Right? Or to serve in some different capacity. Also coming back from just being involved in worshiping his Lord and helping people worship their Lord. Coming back from the, just a, probably an amazing spiritual experience. Guy does the same thing. Both of these people should have had a heart that welled up within them. A compassion that said, I need to help this man. He's a fellow Jew. He falls with this, this criteria, right? Of being a person of God. We should help them. But both caught up with life, caught up with whatever was going on, didn't have that compassion. Instead of just love, showed hatred toward the guy, indifference toward the guy. You would have expected the next thing for Jesus to say is, well, just a Jew came walking down the road, you know, a good standing Jew, because that would have been progression. Maybe it was an anti-cleric bias Jesus was getting at, but that wasn't the case. He said a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. The hated Samaritan. The last person in the world that anybody would think would have compassion on a Jew. I was trying to think of, of a group of people that we would detest in that way, and I can't think of a group. I, I think if we were, I think during 9-11 there was maybe a little bit of an anti-Muslim bias. I think that's fair. A little bit, of, maybe more of a fear than a hatred, right? For sure. I think after World War II there was probably anti-Japanese bias for a little bit, anti-German bias maybe for a little bit during that time. Certainly they were under suspicion. Japanese were put in a camp, right? But in general in America we've kind of been called the melting pot, right? And so we don't get too hateful toward other people. And so I started thinking maybe ISIS. We don't hate them too much now, but what if they kept bombing 
one city after another in our country? Would all of a sudden we develop that hatred? Maybe. But there was an intense hatred between the two. The Samaritans hated the Jews because they treated them as less than. They demeaned who they were. They called them half-breeds. The Jews hated them because they blamed them, people like them, for getting them exiled in the first place, for leading them down a path of idolatry. And they had told themselves, we just need to stay separate from them. But it turned into, we just need to hate them so much that we never want to be part of them. Jesus said the Samaritan, as he journeyed, was welled up within him, his heart, he had compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which were two things that a traveler, a well-equipped traveler probably would have. They were very common, oil and wine. Wine is kind of an antiseptic to wash the wound, oil to kind of soothe it so it wouldn't hurt so bad. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And we think two denarii, that can be too much, right? But it's probably two months' rent. So he, he takes him to this inn, and he continues to take care of the guy, taking care of his wounds, taking care of everything. He probably had business to attend to, but he gets him set up in this inn, and he says, take care of this guy. Here's two months' rent. If you need anything else, I will repay you when I get back. And so you get a sense that the innkeeper probably knew the Samaritan a little bit, had done business with him, knew he was a man of integrity, and so he does. He just didn't leave him there as thinking, oh, if I just get him to the end, my job's done. Like when I dropped the guy off at his car, I thought, I'm done. <laughs> I mean, there you go. You can fill it up from here, right? You know, he took care of him all the way, making sure that he was okay. And the next day he took out, oh, there we go. And I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer, not missing the point, said the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. When Jesus expanded who his neighbor was to even his enemies, it became more complicated. I'd almost get if the people in front of that guy were his enemies, why they might turn around, built in hatred of some sort that would have caused them to act so mean to that person, that would cause him to feel so rejected he left church. But even if God calls us to love our enemies as well, to have a compassion that wells up within them, thinking if that was my first time in a church, I'd want to be welcomed too. Somehow, this knowledge that we have of Jesus, this knowledge of the love that God has given us, the forgiveness that we have, the strength that we have in the Holy Spirit, all those different things should well up within us a care for our neighbor at some point. You see, our actions, and this is just truism, it's true in psychology, it's true in, in, in the scriptures, it's true everywhere. Our actions demonstrate what it is that we actually believe. They are a demonstration of what's going on inside our heart. We act on our beliefs. You guys all came in and sat down not worrying if you, your seat would crash because you believed that the chair would hold you up. If it crashes one day, you will always come in tentatively after that saying, it's going to you know, hold me up or what? We always act on what we believe. If we believe that Christ loves us, cares about us, would do anything for us that should well up in us at least some kind of compassion for our neighbor. What does it say in Scripture in Revelation or in Timothy? The hearts of many will grow cold at the end. And that's what's happening to our society today. 
We're telling ourselves it's okay to not care anymore about the people in our lives. They got to worry about themselves. I'm okay, you're okay, right? Isn't that the saying? And in that, we've given ourselves a permission to not act, to not care, to not love, to not be concerned about. There's, it's a funny song. It's a James Bond song, but I'm in the gym and I keep listening to it. It's on some loop or whatever. Live and let die, right? Remember that, James Bond? But isn't that kind of what our culture says today? They're a mess. They're going down a horrible path, but that's them. That's them. It doesn't need to affect me. I have friends, I have kids, I have whatever in my life. They're going down a horrible path, but you know, that's their decisions. They're making their own choices. I'm going to harden myself against it so I don't have to get involved, right? I don't have to care, or I don't have to, right? We harden ourselves so much to the people around us that we are this, peop, this, this these priests, that we are this Levite who just walks by on the other side of the road way too often. Who is my neighbor? Jesus turns that around and says, who are you a neighbor to? And as he turns it around, you get the sense that the lawyer said, it's impossible to be perfect in loving my neighbor. Aha! And it gave him a sense for why he needed the forgiveness of Jesus. It gave him a picture into it. It couldn't be through works. It had to be through God. It gave him a bigger picture of what was going on. Luke kind of builds on that and goes into the next story and says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to her, his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, she's kind of blaming him, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I was thinking about that. I was thinking, how often do we get caught up in the Martha syndrome? How often do we got everything else that's more important or that's going on that we don't have time to spend any time with God. And God calls us to meditate on his word daily, right? Do some kind of devotion. Connect with his word at some level. He calls us to do it daily, right? Why? To have that check-in with God, to have that voice, that's, that, that, that living word it kind of inflow into us and give us strength or forgiveness or courage or hope or whatever, right? God wants to develop that relationship with us. He wants to spend time with us. But how often do we make everything else in the world more important. I think we do it a lot. We got excuses of why we can't make it to church. We got excuses of why we can't be in devotion. We got excuses to why we don't pray more because we're so busy. And Jesus would just look at us and say, I know, you're caught up with a lot of stuff. Man, are you busy. But there's only one thing that's needed. You know, I, you know there's a lot of people in our world today that are struggling in relationships. You got marriage struggles, you got family struggles, you got friend struggles. When I do premarital counseling, one of the things I say is if your relationship with God is right, it's going to be a help and an aid to your marriage. Do you get that? Because there's something outside of you two that's calling you to compassion and forgiveness and keep on keeping on and don't give up and turn the other cheek 
and work through this, right? You got a God that wants your marriage to work, is rooting for you every second of the way, and is inflowing you with the strength to keep on working at it. And if God's good and your marriage is good, you know that's a strength for your kids? You can't divide and conquer anymore, right? All of a sudden that avenue went away. You got parents that love each other. Poor you, right? You have friends that they don't even see that one of their parents. You have friends that the divorced parents are fighting all the time. Maybe their parents are fighting all the time. You got parents that are working at their marriage and they're succeeding. Kids would kill for that. They'd love to have that stability. They'd love to have that, that center in their, in their relationship at home. They'd love for that drama to be removed, that conflict to be removed. Do you see when you do it in order, when God's the center and then your marriage and then your kids, everything tends to work better. Doesn't mean there's not exceptions, right? But the reality, it just tends to give you a strength. God's got to be the center. Now, if you're a kid and you got that relationship with God going, does it give you the strength to obey your parents even when you think they're wrong? Yeah. Does it give you the, the strength and the wisdom to be respectful even when they're maybe not deserving your respect? Does it help you be a strength to your friends in terms of what you're doing and what you're leading them to do and the kind of people that you hang with? Absolutely. It gives you a center. God always gives you a center to move forward. God loves you guys so much and he says only one thing is needed. How often do we forget that? It's interesting, I, there's a great example of this. From time to time, I just hear things, but we have people that come and serve at church on a Sunday morning, which I love, I, and God has given you all gifts and abilities. I would love for you all to serve on Sunday I, or during the week. I'd love for you guys to do that. You can't imagine the payback that God gives you as a result of that, to helping people in their relationship with God. It's just powerful. And if you're interested in that, we'll figure out what you're good at or what you want to do and you'll plug you in. I, I just promise you. But every once in a while I have somebody that serves in the church and they, they'll, they'll serve sometimes two services on Sunday morning, but they never quite go to church. So they're busy serving all day long, just like Martha, but they're never spending any time getting poured into. You know what happens to a pitcher when you keep pouring out and you don't actually fill it up ever again? It runs out. That's what happens when we serve and we serve and we serve and we never get anything poured into us. God says, my word is what gets poured into you. Communion, when we take it, is God pouring into you again his love and his forgiveness. Imagine a hug. How much does a hug make a difference in your life? Right? You're a mess. You're, you're freaking out about a life. All of a sudden you get this hug and all you're like, okay, we can do it. <laughs> you know, it just gives you that center. Let God give you that center every week. You need it. If anything, I'm the cheerleader, right? And I keep cheering you on, saying, hey, remember this, remember? I'm telling you to remember what God has promised in your life, that you need him, and you do, because without him, we get frazzled. Without him, we forget everything. And then all of a sudden, we're living life on our own. Jesus again says, remember, only one thing is necessary. And in this case, Mary chose the good portion and won't be taken away from her. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples um, said to him, hey, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, and you'll recognize this a little bit, a little shorter than what we do, but he says, Father, hallowed be your name. But when he says Father, he actually says Abba, which is actually kind of like the word for Papa or Daddy. And I know we get real formal in church and we say our Father, but more appropriate, it would probably be Daddy, Papa, 
who art in heaven. And is there a difference between father and papa? Is there a difference between father and daddy? Yeah, you don't use that other word very much, right? Except in a close relationship. In a relationship of trust. Where you know that person loves you more than anything else in the world. It gives us a perspective of God that's different from every other religion in the world, to be honest. It gives them a different perspective. They looked at God as Yahweh. I am who I am, okay? All that God was in his power, in his might, and by the way, in his upsetness, right? They just got exiled. They were brought back. They'd seen the wrath of God in a very real way, the discipline of God. He was everything that a father is, right? Jesus says, but you can look at him as Papa. You can look at him as Daddy. And my encouragement is when you pray that you would look at God in that way, a father that loves you with everything that he has, that's concerned about your life, that will do anything for you as you go through life, that's the kind of God that you have. That's the kind of God that sent Jesus so that you could be saved, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be renewed, so that you could be with him forever. Hallowed be your name, holy be your name. Again, a name, especially at this time in, in, in Jewish culture, a name represented all that that person was. And so if you were a hooligan named Mike, oh, Mike, you know, but that was the name and that's what you were known by and it entailed everything of who you are, that name Mike, right? But if you were a good person named John or whatever, oh yeah, John's a good person and it just made a difference in what you called them, right? Yahweh actually means I am who I am. It talks about all of his personhood, the fact that he spoke creation into being, that he sent his son Jesus to die for us on the cross, that he loves you with an everlasting love, that he sees and knows everything that's going on with you in this life, cares about everything going on with you in this life, would do anything as evidenced by his son and wants nothing more than for you to be with him for eternity. Hallowed, holy be that name, that God that cares for us that much. Your kingdom come, in other words, Lord, can I get an amen that life is hard, God is good? It, it, life is hard. It, it, it's, it, it doesn't get easier. It just seems like, you know, you go through those good times and we rejoice in those good times. But life is a continual opportunity to experience difficulty and challenges in life. And so we say, your kingdom come. God, as soon as you want to come again and restore all things and set us up in your kingdom forever and ever, as soon as you want to give us our prize, our paradise, make that happen as soon as you can. Because we'd love for it to experience that and not what we have to experience in this life on a continual basis. Give us each day our daily bread. In other words, supply our needs. Forgive us our sins. And you come into a recognition of that, not in just the last couple of stories, but you come into a recognition of that just as you go through life. You try to be perfect. You try to do good things. But guess what? You see the impossibility of that. Our actions are determined by what we believe. And if that's true, are you horrified at what you actually believe at times? Yeah. Because you say some pretty rotten things. And you do some pretty rotten things. And when we recognize the depth of our depravity, right? Because we act on what we actually believe is important or going on in our hearts. When we recognize the, the actual depravity that we have, it draws us back to Jesus. And we say, I'm so sorry. God wraps us up in his arms of love and he says, I forgive you. Go now and sin no more. 
In other words, get back in the game, right? You're going to blow it again, come back again, I'm going to love you and I'm going to forgive you. But he will never despise a humble and contrite heart, a heart that recognizes their imperfection, their sin before God and comes to him. Every single time he will say, I love you, I forgive you, you're mine. I love you, I forgive you, you're mine. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So this is a, an example of our actions being determined on what's going on inside. It's hard for us to receive forgiveness when we're not forgiving toward other people. You ever talk to somebody who's super proud about something, not willing to admit anything, that they've done anything wrong? They're real receptive to, if you would say, I'm sorry at that point, they're like, you better be. <laughs> no, they, they don't, they're not hearing anything. We carry so many grudges in this world. We want forgiveness, but it's hard for us to say, I forgive you and mean it. It's hard for us to let go. And you know what I forgive you means? It means I forgive you and I'm not going to bring this up anymore. I forgive you and I'm not going to hold this against you in my heart anymore. I forgive you the way that Christ forgave me. I know some rotten forgivers that want Jesus' forgiveness all the time. We should be so blown away by what God has done for us. It wells us in us a compassion to release somebody else in our life from their sin. It doesn't help our relationship with them anyway. It just hinders it. It, gets, it breaks it. God says, forgive the way I've forgiven you. Release them because I've released you. And I promise you, I can restore all things. If you've ever been forgiven for something big, is it life-changing? You guys don't have to admit it, but it is. You're so blown away by the fact that the person has released you from something that you almost like redouble your efforts never to screw up like that way again. You're so thankful that they've given you a second chance. You're so grateful that they're not holding it against you. It moves you to do different things that are beyond what you would have done otherwise. That's the kind of love that should well up in us because of Jesus. Again, it's got to affect our hearts. It can't just be knowledge. We're not saved by knowledge. We're saved by faith, which is trust. We're saved by trust in Jesus Christ. And so eventually that stuff on the outside should look like what Jesus has done for us on the inside. But whenever we think that we can get to heaven by being good, we come to that stark realization that we can't. And that should drive us humbly back to Jesus again for forgiveness, to give us the strength and go try it again. And lead us not into temptation. Satan has also got a purpose for our life. I don't know if you knew that. God's got a great purpose. Satan's got a lousy purpose. God's purpose is to take you to heaven. Satan's purpose is to take you to hell. So Satan wants to destroy trust and faith in God. Jesus wants to build faith and trust in God. There's actually a spiritual battle that's going on. And because of Jesus, he says you win because I've got you. But Satan, it doesn't mean he doesn't try. It doesn't mean he doesn't go after us, trying to trip us up. He doesn't mean he doesn't go after people who love the Lord but had a bad day and treated somebody who wanted to know about the Lord so horribly they left church. They just had to get into those two couples in an instant to drive that man out of the church. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It means they lost sight of what was important. But he tempted them, and they gave in to it. And the guy fled our church this morning. Lead us not into temptation.
Give us the strength to resist evil. Give us the strength to resist the evil one. Give us an awareness that there's actually a battle going on. Let us not so easily succumb to Satan's wiles. Help us show people Jesus and not the opposite. And he said to them, which of you has a friend? Well, I'm not going to go to this part. Okay, so we're going to stop with the Lord's Prayer today. Let me pray. God, we love you so much and we just thank you for your words today. Thank you for reminding us how much you love us. Thank you for reminding us that that love should make a difference in our life somehow. That somehow it should well up in us a compassion for other people so that they too might know just how amazing you are, how awesome you are, how much you care, how much you give. Father, as we go through life, we're just, we're so sorry because we mess up all the time. We lose sight of the important things. We get busy, so busy that we forget you. We do everything, it seems, so imperfectly. And so let that drive us back to you saying we're so sorry. And then let us rejoice in your forgiveness. It almost seems too simple that it should work that way. And yet it's that way because of Jesus. It's that way because he walked all the way to the cross in obedience to you to give up his life for us. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It wasn't cheap. He experienced the worst side of humanity's fall. But in going through that and rising victoriously, we can say now with simplicity that because of Jesus you're forgiven and renewed and strengthened to show other people just how amazing our God is. Guys, go with that peace and that strength today in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.